Well, good to be with you this morning. Happy Sunday, January 13th. It's good to be with you this morning. And we, yeah, we've started this, this uh, new series called The Essentials. And really the basis behind the series is really to explore what are the essentials that are needed for a disciple of Jesus to operate in the world that we live in? What are the foundational or the fundamental principles that are necessary that need to be in place or need to be operational in the life of a follower of Jesus to live the life that Jesus has for us? What are these foundational things? What are these bases, uh, basic things, these essential things? And so as we're approaching our relaunching as the Echo Fremont campus, I felt, have felt led to, as your pastor, to share some things with you as we move towards this transition, things that are especially close to my own heart in terms of what I think to be the most important things to convey to our congregation as we move forward, as it relates to your walk and your journey with Jesus. Last week, uh, and you may not have been able to attend last Sunday, you can go online and watch uh, a video of the sermon last week if you'd like, or listen to the podcast, it's available online. And last week we talked about learning how to live in the now as an essential reality of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. How to learn to live in the now, live in the present, live in the moment of what you're in, not always looking forward to what comes next or what's the next uh, item on my agenda to get done. And so often we just blow through our day and we, we miss God's interactivity, God's presence with us uh, throughout the day when we do that. So anyway, I don't want to preach that message again. You can go back and listen to it or watch it on, on our website. So this morning, I want to look at essential number two. And as Val mentioned, I'm going to talk about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit to be exact. And we're going to look at the Spirit in a two-part series. I'll talk about part of it this week and then the next part next Sunday. And so the first question I'd like us to consider this morning is, why does the Holy Spirit make it into this Essentials series? Why does the Holy Spirit make it into this Essentials series? Well, that's kind of a silly question because the Holy Spirit is incredibly essential to the church. The Holy Spirit is incredibly essential for followers of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is incredibly essential for humanity today. As a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is, is essential for us in all areas of our lives. There's no area of our life that God does not want to touch with the life-giving power and work of His Spirit. The Spirit has practical implications for our lives as He's able to help us know how to navigate and live in this world in the midst of the myriad of choices and decisions that we could make daily. And understanding and learning to listen to the Spirit is essential for the success of our lives and in our lives as followers of Jesus. Look at this verse in Psalm 32, Psalm 32, verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you, Psalm 32, 8. Let me read that again. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. God has an active investment in leading and in guiding us. He can and he will get specific with us. This isn't just some sort of a nice 
theological feel-good verse. But God is active in our lives, active in our decision-making, or at least wants to be active in our decision-making on a day-in-and-day-out basis. And not just big decisions, right? Small decisions, daily routine decisions. Not because he's a control monger, but because he wants us to be able to experience his life-giving power and presence in the midst of the activities that we're in. Look at this next verse, John 16, 13. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. I love this verse that he guides us into all of the truth. And I like to look at this in the context of it being true, this daily guidance into truth. Like it, it, within the context and the real-time decisions that we're making in the now. A lot of times we live life and we don't know exactly the right decisions to make at the right times, right? And we don't always know that the, that the, uh, the decisions that we're making, what, is, what does God think about this decision? Is this an important decision to him or not? The Bible doesn't seem to tell me, a prescript for me, a prescribed for me, an answer that, to this particular decision, right? For example, do I put this much money into my retirement account or this much money? Now, you may think, in an, an initial thinking, that, well, God doesn't really care about kind of that kind of a detail. Of course he does. Is it important to you? Then it's important to him. And God has something probably to say about that, wants to guide you and instruct you in, in decisions like that, wants to lead us into truth, contextual truth, based on what we're living in and what we're doing. So not only does he instruct us and teach us in the ways that we should go and guide us with his eyes on us, but he wants to guide us into truth and our daily decisions and our daily tasks. And then in Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And here what you see is that the Spirit of God gave specific direction very specific direction and decisions to be made. Very clearly communicated to the early church in this context what he wanted the leaders to do. Almost like a, a physical person speaking words to somebody in their presence. And so learning to listen and to hear and to respond to the voice of the Holy Spirit is essential for us as followers of Jesus. God wants to have an active investment in our, in our lives. He didn't create us to be dependent on ourselves and our own minds. He created us to be dependent on Him in all ways and for all things. And so that's why the Holy Spirit is a part of the Essentials series. We can't not have Him, using a nice double negative. I don't even know if that works. The second question we want to look at this morning related to the Spirit is, who is the Holy Spirit? And put simply, the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is not the third most important person of God. It's not the lesser of the, of the three, not the lowest on the totem pole. The Holy Spirit is equally God with the Father, yes, God the Father, the one that shows up so much in the Hebrew Scriptures that led and guided the Israelites through the wilderness. 
The Holy Spirit is just as important and valuable as the physical manifestation of God in the flesh, in Jesus Christ, walking this planet. Jesus is not more important than the Spirit. The Spirit is not important and more important than the Spirit. God the Father is not important, more important of either of the two. They are all one expression, one visual, under, visual and, and cosmic understanding of who God is, the triune nature of God, fully present, fully active. It says in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the, I mean, the Spirit of God shows up at the very beginning of the account of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. God's Spirit was active and here and present at the very onset of creation. Jesus also says that when he left, that he would send his spirit to be with us. I love this, this progression of, of the ways in which God reveals himself. God reveals himself primarily as the Father, with different scatterings of the Spirit's influence in the Hebrew Scriptures, but primarily as God the Father. And then we see God the Son, Jesus, come on this planet. And, and Jesus, for about 33 years or so, was, was the focal point of God's incarnation, God's manifestation among his people. And then Jesus even communicates that it's essential for him to leave because if he doesn't leave, then the Spirit is not then given and poured out on his people. So he says here, What's that next verse there that we have? There we go. John 14, 15 to 17. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because he neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. So who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is God. And what's even more profound is that the Spirit of God resides and dwells in his people. Like, that's crazy. I mean, we, we, if you've been a Christian for a while, or you kind of understand that concept, and it's like, yeah, I get that. That's a good theological concept. I get it. But if you think about the realities of that, the implications of that truth, it's pretty a profound thing. God has chosen to take up residency in his people. Much like God chose to take residence, same, different, but in the same context. Think about it this way. God chose to take residency up in the Virgin Mary as a physical baby. And I think there's some imagery there that we can use for this context as well. God has implanted his spirit in us. He has chosen to take residency up within our lives. And so the Spirit of God is incredibly significant. What does the Holy Spirit do? Well, what does He not do? Maybe a better way to look at it. But the first thing I want to mention is that the Spirit of God teaches. He teaches. Now, most often this is done within the context of reading and processing the Scriptures. Again, I want to encourage you. I, I'm not sure what your habit is and what your, uh, how your reading of the Scriptures functions today, but I want to encourage you that God wants to interact with you through the Scriptures on a daily basis. 
So I would encourage you to look for time to continually build in time to be with Jesus in the context of the Scriptures. Not just to read the Bible for the Bible's sake, not just to read the Bible for knowledge's sake, to get more facts right or to understand the historical story better. That's all good stuff. But read the Scriptures with an eye or with a heart directed towards God speaking and guiding you and teaching you through the... has some significance in the context of your life that you're in today. And it speaks to you. It teaches you. God's Spirit leads you and guides you. He illuminates that scripture. He draws it into direct application for your life. I mean, just... I read, it's just like, oh, I've heard this verse before. It kind of can become, can become rote. Like, you just kind of understand the language. It's like, yeah, that sounds good. That's like Paul's writing. He just writes this way. But as I intentionally slow myself down, as I sit down before God, as I pray and say, Spirit of God, illuminate your word to me. Help me to pay attention to the things I read and the ways that you're interacting with me, and then to stop and to sit with those things, which is a great way to read the scriptures, Right? This is what came out to me yesterday morning in 1 Thessalonians 5, 10, and 11. This is the verse. Jesus died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, he's talking about those that have died and passed away and those that are still living. So whether we are awake, we are alive, or we are asleep, we're dead, we may... Live together with him. That was incredibly significant to me as I read that. That we, whether we are alive or we are dead, God calls us to live together with him. So when someone who's passed along and is gone, they are living together with God in that place. We don't fully understand that because none of us have died here and come back to live again. So we don't know exactly what that feels or looks like. But they are, the Scriptures teach us that they are living with Him. But what's even more profound for me as a living human being is that while I am awake, that God wants me to live together with Him. Right? So the implications for me, as I was reading this yesterday, were significant. God wants to be active in everything I do because I'm living with him, living together with him. It's not just this ethereal concept in my head, this thing that just kind of like, oh, that sounds fun, that's great, whatever, okay, let me, let me get down to real work and real life now. No, God actively wants to 
partner with me, wants to be with me in the routineness, the activity of my life. I'm called to live together with him. I am joined with him. His spirit lives and resides within me. And so the spirit of God desires, desperately desires, to be active in the living of my life along with me. That's an incredibly profound truth. You are not alone in this world. God is with you. God is in you. God resides with you. God is your comforter, your teacher, the one who gives you peace, the one who gives you direction. So the Spirit of God teaches us. He also speaks, and this kind of relates in the same way too, but a little different. He speaks and he guides. A little different than the, than the teaching one that I just talked about. In my experience, this has been more of an intimate, subconscious type of activity that really comes, with, uh, comes from a place where we learn to sit with God and learn to listen to Him. And that's really hard, but it starts there. He speaks like the way that the Spirit of God spoke in the early church that we read about, and we read about in Acts 13, I think it was, right? Set apart. If you look back at that verse, can we go back to that verse, Greg? I know I'm out of, jumping out of order, but the Acts 13 verse, it's about further back in there somewhere. If you can find it, that's cool. If not, that's all right. I'm going to read it. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, okay, worshiping and fasting, there's prayer that's going on in that context. That's what prayer is, is this lifestyle of interaction with God, whether through worship, whether through fasting. The Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. And so they fasted and prayed, placed their hands on them, and sent them off. God speaks and guides, gives us direction out of times of prayer and silence and an ability to listen and to discern His voice in our lives. Um, it's kind of weird how God does this. And sometimes it takes a little bit of time to get to. But it's almost like God rewards us sometimes for our heart's desire to spend time with Him, to sit with Him. I can't begin to tell you the times that I have sat in silence and tried to just focus on Jesus. I maybe repeat a phrase, Jesus loves me, I love you Jesus, and just continue to come back to that. Because you know, if, as you try to sit in silence, your mind is, is just onslaught with all kinds of things, right? Things that you hadn't dealt with yet or items on your to-do list or like your mind just it does not shut off, right? And so when you're not silent, when you're active, you're busy and focused, your mind is busy and focused on the things in front of you that you're engaging and seeing and, being, and participating in, right? When you slow down and you stop, you consciously stop your mind and you consciously sit in silence, your mind, it's almost like a, a, a mechanism, like you know those toys that you would back up? You know, and you back up and then it would click, 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 and then you'd let it go and it just takes off, right? 
Well, like when you're, you're in a, your life is living like that on a day-to-day basis, you're constantly clicking back, your engine's getting revved up and ready to go, and it's being held by your activities. So you may be involved in working on, for me, working on a sermon or, or sending an email or whatever it may be, and I'm focused on that. And then I move on to the next thing, all while there's all this tension built up behind me that's been building, right? May not be bad tension, but it's just, it's activity tension. It's all there. And then as I sit in silence, what happens is that the brain starts saying, hey, okay, now it's time to start unpacking all this other stuff that's been backlogged, right, for so long. And so then I sit in silence, and it's like, holy smokes, like, oh, yeah, I was supposed to do that. I was supposed to do that. What about that conversation? Like, there's all this onslaught of activity that hits our minds. We can't control that. That's just going to happen. But we can be intentional to sit in silence, to let it go by, let it pass, honor it for what it is, and then remain. And remain in a place of openness and silence. It's hard, friends. It is. But it is so incredibly necessary because the Spirit of God speaks to us in the stillness of those moments. He guides us. He directs us. He gives us words that we need for the context or the situation that we're in. I have had very specific words from God come to me in periods of silence. Not not from things that I actually audibly heard God say. But things like, I've shared this before, wait and wash windows. When I was in between jobs, between coming before I came to Mission Springs, don't network, very clear. Wait and wash windows, very clear. The Spirit imposed His voice on my consciousness. These words came to me, and I received them in faith and trusted that they were from God. That came with a sense of confidence, a sense of peace that God was in them. Other phrases like, this is the way. Keep doing what you're doing. As I was going through this process of transition for our church and really praying and and thinking and desperately seeking God for the future of our church and our congregation, I've been praying for three years for what God would have us do as a church to move forward. Three years. You probably didn't all know that. But seeing the trends of our church and seeing people that had moved away and what was going on with our church in terms of declining numbers and people moving out of the area and not just wanting to slap some sort of church method on it because I've seen it done somewhere else or I've done it somewhere else in some other context, but sensing the Spirit of God saying, keep doing what you're doing. I'm not going to give you clarity on it right now. Just keep what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. And then at a certain period of time, God opens up the floodgates, starts giving more clarity and direction, and says something like, nope, a merger is what I want you to do. I want you to lead the church through this. So he speaks and he guides, but friends, it comes from cultivating places of listening. It has to happen. You need that for your life. It's hard, but it needs to happen. Because the Spirit desperately wants to guide you and direct you in the things that are important in your life. And He has words to speak to you. But we have to get ourselves in places to listen and to shut down the noise to hear from Him. 
The Holy Spirit also brings conviction and life-giving comfort. This can happen in a variety of ways. Uh, just He does this in a, a lot of different ways as well. My, my, uh, my experience with him bringing conviction and life-giving comfort is a lot of times this happens in the context of doing life. So I'll be in activity. I'll be doing certain things, and the Spirit of God will bring conviction, bring clarity. Darren, you're going down the wrong path here. Or he'll give life-giving comfort. Keep doing, do what you're doing here. You're walking in the right way. You're doing the right thing. And so I've experienced that in my own journey, different ways where I've kind of recognized the spirit going on inside of me, like when I'm driving, right? And if I start feeling, I'd use the analogy, we all use the analogy of driving and stuff, whatever. But for me, as I'm driving, you know, I notice my, what's going on inside of me sometimes plays out on how I view people around me that I'm on the freeway with. Am I feeling gracious? Am I feeling anxious? Am I angry? Am I at peace? And so as I watch and see how I handle with a car cutting me off or somebody pulling in front of me and then slowing down, so I have to go around them, like those control issues that I deal with and those selfish issues I deal with, as they start to manifest, I can start feeling like, okay, I'm not centered in the right spot here. I'm not operating out of a place of life. I'm operating out of a place of death right now. And so I'm able to, in the real life, the Spirit of God is able to reveal that to me and help me see that. And I'm able to reorient myself back and say, okay, I'm going to put on the blinker and go drive in the slow lane. Right? Just slow it down. And start maybe praying for cars coming onto, onto the road. Praying for the people in those cars. Right? So there's ways in which the Spirit of God shows up and speaks in the midst of our activity and routines in ways that we're not asking Him to do. But as we cultivate a living awareness with the Spirit in our lives, He inevitably does so. He shows up in the activities and the routines of our lives and either brings conviction, shows us where we're headed in the wrong direction, or He can bring us comfort in those places as well. And then finally, He leads. The Holy Spirit leads. My experience is that the Holy Spirit will not force Himself upon us. The Holy Spirit will not force Himself, even though He could and He has every right to. Some weirdness as it relates to God's ability to give us free will and not to force His agenda onto our agenda. And so He does not force Himself upon us. If we want to lead in ways, He'll let us lead. But we also won't experience the life that He wants us to experience when we do so. As we let him lead, he leads us and helps us make the right decisions. And they may look different than conventional models. They may have the appearance of something that doesn't look successful. For example, we just talked about our church and church merger. From the concept of trying to think about growing and building the church, it would not appear to be successful to say, no, we're going to actually merge with another church and cease to be who we are in terms of an entity, and become somebody else. That might be seen as a failure. But when God is the one who is leading that process, and God is giving clarity that this is what I'm calling you to do, it is a win. It is a success. It is the right thing to do. It may not look the way we thought. 
It may be unconventional, but God often seems to be the God of the unconventional, the upside-down God, doing things outside of the box of the way that we think things might be done. And so we have to learn to listen and obey the Spirit of God. And it involves risk, and it involves sometimes failure. We try and we fail and we learn, and in doing so, we succeed because we obediently tried and failed and learned, and that is success. So the Holy Spirit, He teaches, He speaks and guides, He brings conviction and comfort, and He leads. And so now that we've talked about who the Spirit is and what He does as a communicator to us, I'd like to conclude this morning with this first part by sharing four steps that are involved in preparing our hearts to hear, receive, and to put into action the things that the Spirit of God communicates to us. How do we prepare our hearts to take, to be ready to take and receive from God that what He wants to give us and to put it into action. So the first step in preparing our hearts to hear and receive and to put into action the instruction of the Spirit is to be honest about who's in control of our heart. We have to start by being honest about where our allegiances lie. Who has our heart? We can't expect that the Spirit is going to speak to us and a desire to work in and through us if our hearts don't belong to Him, if He's not in active control over our hearts. This is an incredibly significant issue in our lives. This isn't the same as accepting Jesus into our heart and then thinking that He has control because one time I prayed to become a Christian. The control and lordship issues of our hearts are an ongoing development and surrender issue in our Christian lives. They happen daily, friends. And when they're not, there's probably something wrong. The Bible continually teaches us the need to be continually uh, reoriented to being controlled by the Spirit of God. I want to look at two passages of Scripture that are written to churches. Not written to people who don't know Jesus. These are written to people who are following Jesus. Disciples of Jesus, people wanting their lives to look like Jesus. Ephesians 5.18, Paul says to the church at Ephesus, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, wait a minute. If they're already Christians, aren't they already filled with the Spirit? I mean, Darren, you just got done saying that as a follower of Jesus, God implants His Spirit in us. That is true. So in one sense, yes, at at rebirth, the Spirit comes in and occupies us. I think a better word used here instead of filling might be the word controlled. We may have the Spirit of God living and residing in us, but are we quenching the Spirit of God in us? That's language that's used in the Scriptures as well. Are we being controlled by the Spirit of God? Remember, He doesn't assert authority over us and force us and force His control in our lives. He's there. He resides within us. What are we doing with God's Spirit in us? Are we fanning the flame of God's Spirit? Are we quenching 
the work of God. Paul here says, don't get drunk on, on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Someone who is struggling with alcoholism is taking in alcohol into their body and is being driven or controlled by the, the alcohol levels that are flowing through that person's heart and into the rest of their blood system and into their brain, right? There's, there's ways in which behavior changes. That's why you can't, you, know, you can't drive if your blood alcohol content is at a certain level because you're not able to think clearly or to focus clearly or to react in the right way. Being controlled by alcohol can lead to lots of negative things, right? Our inhibitions are down. We may be more prone to do things that we know are not right because we're not as concerned. We don't care as much anymore. It can expose a lot of things going on inside of us, a lot of hurt or disappointment or frustration or anger. So people that are controlled by alcohol can, can lash out. They can be quite abusive. If you've ever drank alcohol, you know that there is a control property that is a part of that, that your things change about you when you drink. And Paul is saying, this is not so much a verse where Paul is trying to tell us, hey, don't drink alcohol. He's using the analogy of alcohol to talk about the reality of the Spirit. God wants us to be controlled by the Spirit. He doesn't want us to be controlled by consumerism. He doesn't want us to be controlled by prescription medication. He doesn't want us to be controlled by, uh, by an addiction to comfort and to pleasure. He doesn't want us to be controlled by our own internal understanding of, of what makes me valuable is how hard I work or, or wh- what I wear or what job I have. He wants us to be controlled by the central operating system in our lives, which is the Spirit of God, to be continually controlled by the Spirit. If we were to evaluate our lives honestly, would we say that we're living in a place and have a desire to be continually controlled by the Spirit? That's what God wants for us, friends. He wants us to at the very least, want to be controlled by the Spirit of God. To say, I know maybe that I'm not, and I want to be. I want to be more subject to you and your life-giving control in my life. Revelations chapter 13, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Another, this is Jesus actually speaking to one of the churches in Revelation. It says, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. Because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Here's a picture of a church not being controlled by the Spirit. They're lukewarm. They're not really cold because God is with them. They have chosen, they've signed up to follow Jesus, so they're not cold. But they're definitely not hot because they're still living entrapped to their own, the worldly values, the other systems that drive their operation internally. They're concerned about their own livelihood. They're concerned about their careers. They're concerned about um, how they're seen or understood by other people. And so they're, they're not hot because they're not fully living in the Spirit and controlled by the Spirit. They're lukewarm. 
And Jesus obviously isn't too happy about lukewarmness. The Bible makes it clear the disciples of Jesus that Christians can live lives that are not controlled by the Spirit, and that should scare us. It scares me. Not because God's rejected me, but because I, I look at that and say, man, how easy it is for me to live life in a way not controlled by the Spirit, not experiencing God's life for me. How much of life do I live living in death, even as a follower of Jesus? I allow the values of this world or the things that I think are important or the ways that I try to sustain my worship of me, Darren, to be right, to be in control, to have what I want. How much of that drives and motivates me on a day-in and day-out basis, even subconsciously. God wants to have total control of our lives, not because he's a rule taskmaster, a slave driver. He's good and perfect and wonderful. And he knows that we were created to live in unceasing dependency and reliance on him. After all, friends, in case you didn't know, that's what heaven's going to be like. Living continually in the presence of God, in awe, and in reliance and dependence on his goodness and his beauty. That's what we'll be about. And he wants us to begin experiencing that today. And so it's good to evaluate kind of where control is in our hearts right now. Like, this is really important for all of us. Like, what motivates and drives you and gives you a sense of, of purpose today? Right? What, what drives your activity? What drives your heart? What, what has the focus of your heart and your life? What do you give your time and your attention to? How do you spend most of your time? Is it... Do you spend most of your time just being busy? Trying to accomplish more things? Get more things done? Do you spend a lot of your time in worry? Do you spend a lot of your time focused on just trying to make things more comfortable for yourself or to make more money? I don't, whatever, the list can go on and on for all of us. What has most of our time? Recognize that the Spirit of God wants to recapture for us. Wants us to, actually a better way to say this is for us to recapture His life-giving experience and presence that drives and motivates our days daily. That our hearts exist to be lived in cooperation and conjunction with Him. And so everything that we do is filtered through God's spirits and presence and activity and involvement in our lives. So we have to be ruthless about this. We have to look. And it goes ups and downs, right? There's times when we feel like we're really trusting God, and there's times that we, if we're honest, we look back and say, man, I went through a period season there where I, I really maybe worried a ton about things, and God was gracious to me in that place, right? But he wants me to learn to maybe trust him more with those things that I can't really control. After all, why worry about tomorrow? Tomorrow's got enough to worry about for itself, right? Each day has enough trouble of its own. Learn to walk with Jesus within the day that you're in. I know that's easy to, easier said than done, right? Because we all think about the future. We think about things we can't control. But this is a journey, right? Life is a journey. And I wouldn't be doing my job as your friend and as your pastor to help reorient you as, as I'm doing for myself to reorient us back to what God sees as important. Come back to places of dependency and reliance on Him. 
for everything. And so that involves being honest about who's controlling our hearts. Who's in control? So do an assessment. Ask for God's grace. He's not up there looking to beat you with anything. I want to give you freedom, Darren, in this area because you've been being controlled by this. This is driving your activity, your mind, your emotions, your energy. It's not healthy. It's not life-giving. It's not of my spirit. I want to give you more of me and less of that. Then the second thing, I'll look at step two and then I'll stop here and we'll continue next week. So the first step involved in preparing our hearts to hear, receive, and to put into action the things that God wants to say to us is to be honest about who's in control of our heart. Just have an honest assessment. The second step is to resolve to pursue a clean and devoted heart. That's kind of a natural outflowing of of part one. Resolve to pursue a clean and devoted heart. God wants to use pure and clean hearts. It's not that you're supposed to be perfect. None of us are perfect. Our hearts will never completely be perfectly clean and devoted all the time. But is there an... Is there a humility and a brokenness within us that says, I want God's heart to be my heart. I want my motivations to be God's motivations. I want to pursue, I want to see transformation in my heart and my life that looks like that. And so it's an issue of humility and honesty and a desire to have a heart that's pursuing God relentlessly that matters. 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord said to Samuel, and he was looking at potential kings for Israel. Don't look at that guy, I'm going to paraphrase, right? Don't look at that guy over there that's handsome. He's got pecks of steel. He's really strong, good looking. All the ladies love him. He's a good leader. He can command an army. He looks like that's got to be God's chosen person because he's got it all together on the outside. Don't look at those things because God doesn't look at those things. God doesn't look at the exterior, doesn't look at the things that people look at. People are focused on outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. He looks inside a man and and a woman. His eyes search to and fro among the earth, looking for people whose hearts are devoted to him. That's what matters to God. A pure and clean and devoted heart is probably one of the greatest things that you could ever give yourselves to in this whole entire 80 years plus or less that you live on this planet. Is it a heart that's devoted to God? Is a heart characterized by humility? Is it teachable? Is it moldable and pliable for God's work? You don't have to be perfect for God to be pleased with you, right? That would eliminate basically the entire population except for one, Jesus, who was actually God, so that doesn't count, right? This same new king, the one that God looked at, and he looked at his older brothers, and he says, nope, not those guys that are all strong and good-looking, but that dude right there that's like scrawny, he's like the runt of the pack. That guy, David, yeah, that guy, 
that's going to be my king. Because he saw David's heart. And so even this same new king, David, was not exempt from sin. He was not exempt from screwing up royally, as we know in the story of David, with Bathsheba and Uriah. He did something that probably none of us in this room have done. He murdered another human being after he had slept with his wife and impregnated her. That's King David, the guy after God's own heart, right? You see, his actions didn't draw a direct correlation to his devotion and to the purity of his heart. God cared about his actions. He suffered consequences because of his actions, But the purity of his heart is what brought David back to God in the midst of his sin. Psalm 51.10, David says to God, create, or even better yet, maybe recreate in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me, a, sol- a spirit of solidarity, steadfastness, right? A spirit of solidarity in me. What's he saying? Create it, give me a new heart, recreate my heart that's devoted to you, and renew a dedicated and devoted spirit to you alone. That's what he's asking for, he's praying for, because he recognizes he had it. It's what brought him to be a king. It's what honored him to be a king. It's what God looked at when he saw David. And then David assumed control of his life, loved the power, loved the things that came with power, the notoriety, the popularity, the greatness of being a king, having whatever he wanted. He had it all. Went to his head. Thought he was able to do anything. He screws up royally. Nathan calls him on his sin. He experiences a dramatic consequence because of it. Basically loses the leadership of his sons. And the death of one of his sons. And yet he comes back and he says, not only did I screw up royally, but he says, God, would you recreate in me and give me a steadfast heart and spirit for you again? This is a beautiful story of redemption. And so God calls us to pursue a clean and devoted heart. He wants us to have committed hearts to Him. When we screw up, when we make mistakes, because we will, we all do, how do we come back to God? Do we reorient ourselves? Do we ask for him to recreate in us a clean heart, a pure heart, and a resolved, steadfast spirit that is focused and intent on worshiping, following, and living with him above all else? That's what David models for us. That's the kind of heart that God is looking for. And I'll stop there. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your spirit. Spirit, I'll pray directly to you. Thank you for moving and working in our lives. Thank you for being present. Thank you for giving us life and hope and healing. 
And I will confess that I live in a battle, as I know many of my friends here, we live in a battle where we are living in a new creation body, new creation life, and yet we still live within a world that is surrounding us with, with death, a world that surrounds us with an addiction and a propensity to live for ourselves first over anything else. And we know that we live in that tension that we're fully yours, and yet we still drag around this ball and chain of sin and death that just kind of still trips us up and still takes our energy and our focus. And so, Jesus, thank you for being, or Spirit of God, thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for loving us in those places, and thank you for continually redirecting us back to you and to what's important. Thank you for your Spirit who continually convicts and challenges and gives us comfort and teaches, and guides, and directs us. Would you keep us, as your people, open and pliable, with open hearts to be used by you, to be transformed by you? We know that it is only in you and through you that we can truly experience life. Nothing else compares. And so we ask for your help, your continued direction, and guidance, and strength, and support in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.